You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. For this episode, we're delving into the surprisingly resilient world of student housing, speaking with a fund manager in the asset class and an award-winning investment advisor with an enviable roster of clients in this and other alternative investments. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, this is Alternative Thinking with James Barron from CASA. Today's Tuesday, December 22nd, and today we have Joe Bakish with Richardson Wealth and Sanjul Shah with Alignvest Student Housing. Uh, let's start with self-intros. Uh, start with you, Joe. Okay, great. Good morning. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Joe Bakish uh, at Richardson Wealth, as introduced. I'm a portfolio manager and investment advisor, um, and in terms of how we run our practice, uh, we typically try and build a model uh, that involves lower cost ETFs in order to capture the beta of the market. Uh, and around those, we typically like to add alternative assets to get our alpha. Um, and so it's one of my pleasures to speak about those components, Align Best Student Housing being one of them. Very cool. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and for uh, listeners who aren't, um, up on the beta alpha and omegas and all that. So beta is just like the movement compared to the broader markets. There's always some sort of benchmark up there, out there, uh, maybe the TSX or, or bond markets. And then alpha is the outperformance of that investment compared to that beta. So uh, not just you know, outright return or, beta, uh, or return minus the benchmark. It's, it's actually um, it's uh, with regard to, to that benchmark and its movement. So um let's talk a bit about uh like you said your portfolio manager as well what does that mean joe like in, in an iraq or, or an investment advisor context i mean there's obviously portfolio managers at, at funds uh but how does it how does it work in the uh the context of being an investment advisor yeah great question so i could start out by saying that when i first began in this industry 15 years ago i was a mutual fund representative and what that meant was that i was able to sell mutual funds which had their own actual portfolio manager who would be sitting behind the desk Mm -hmm. picking the individual components and and then you're able to buy a unitized version of all of the securities that that individual selects Um, moving to richardson we became portfolio managers and so what that means now is i could design uh, essentially models which are breakdowns of different securities they aren't unitized so when clients invest with us, they would actually see all the individual holdings that they would have. And then what we're able to do is we're able to make sales or buys accordingly to how the markets evolve and provided it lies within the model framework that the client signs off on, which of course is based on their risk profile. Now, the uh, key uh, with being a portfolio manager is the discretionary component. So. Uh, typically, if you're not a portfolio manager, there are non-discretionary accounts, meaning you have to communicate with your clients uh, for every single transaction. Mm-hmm. But with discretionary, we can operate everything and provided it lands within their risk profile and an investment profile statement, the IPS, uh, then we're good to go. So it's a very efficient way to run a client's investments. 
Oh, very cool. Yeah, actually, I was a broker back in 95, started then, and uh, right after Greenspan stopped uh, raising rates, which is really good timing, but, uh, and we were all, there, there were a few PMs, there was some, some, some people doing it, but most, mostly people were non-discretionary slash just advice, so we'd have to call everybody, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was great, because you got to contact your clients, but if you had to make a larger portfolio move in a, in a short amount of time, that was virtually impossible, because you had to actually physically talk to everybody and advise them on the amount, the timing, uh, the price, um, and then actually execute the trade after that. But, yeah, uh, that's right. And there's some inherent advantages actually to being discretionary because in many cases you could do what's called a bulk trade. So if you have say a hundred clients with a hundred positions in the same holding. So for example, if I had a Vanguard ETF, uh, I could sell the entire book of Vanguard ETF and replace that with an entire position or maybe half of that position and do it in, in basically one uh, order. Obviously, it gets broken down per account per client, but it's very efficient. So instead of going in and programming what could be two or 300 trades, you program one trade and then it's done. Oh, very cool. And then I guess, does that work also on the offering memorandum side for credit investors, the stuff that's not prospectus-based? Right. So this is where you see there are some limitations to the system. Um, and also when you look at alternatives, um, you know, there are pros and cons. One of the cons is liquidity or rather lack thereof. And so mm -hmm. we actually see that as an advantage because we like to take advantage of the e-liquidity premium that comes around with these um, alternatives. So in those situations, you can certainly elect to sell in a bulk order. However, it won't happen right away. Uh, you know, it could take a month or three weeks, depending on whatever their liquidity window is. Um, right. So it doesn't happen instantly, but it does have, in most cases, um, for alternatives, the ability to bulk trade, which is great. Right, because there'll be like a monthly on the first of the month, typically, I guess, or maybe even quarterly. And then also yeah, or uh, annual notice period. Yeah. A notice period might be like 20 days. So then you got two months to wait. But... Yeah, you really have to plan. So, you know, I don't want to make a long story short. I don't want to make a short story long. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in March, when there was a huge dive in the market, we were trying to sell some of our illiquid assets and in, mm. and in order to buy the market that was cheap. And Fortunately, we had two positions representing about 10% of our model, which we were able to sell within the week and get cash and then buy, you know, S&P 500 or VGrow or V Equity, uh, Vanguard Equity, which is just a composite of basically all global equities. And that was great. Mm -hmm. But the other positions that maybe we wanted to just capitalize on, you know, the fact that they stayed flat and were the other ones, the, mar the rest of the market had declined, we weren't able to sell because of either gating issues or because of just um, a lack of liquidity. It would take 60 days to get the money back or, you know, even six months in some cases. So, so it was all right at the mm -hmm. end. We were happy to have been able to take advantage of the market decline and rebalance. And we did so with bonds as well. But, and the other components just are long-term strategies that shouldn't really be traded in and out of. So as much as we wanted to be tactical, it's probably the best at the end that we weren't able to be, but it would have been, it's just something for those that want to, go into the alternative assets to realize that you can't mm -hmm. always get that liquidity. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Well, let's, uh, let's hear about student housing from uh, Sanjil and, uh, and what you've been doing at Lime Investor, Sanjil. 
Great, thanks, James uh, and uh, and Joe. Good to good to always talk to you. Uh, so my name is Sanjul Shah. I'm the managing partner at Aligned Vest Student Housing. Uh, we're a niche real estate fund that owns and operates student housing properties across Canada. We have uh, 3,400 beds across eight properties uh, in Ontario and Alberta. Very cool. And uh, so what, where, are the, where are typically the properties? Is it Ontario, Alberta? Is it um, like a field saw? Is like, there's, a, there's a ton in Waterloo around that area? Or is it uh, Toronto or Queens? or And then... How about Alberta? I guess is really Calgary and and University of Alberta. Are there other universities that are that are good for student housing? Maybe Lethbridge or we uh, yeah, that's a good question, James. So we target tier one universities, which is really a definition that we've made up, which is uh, really looking for universities that have uh, large uh, student bases, over ten thousand students. Uh, outside of the major cities, so not really targeting Toronto or Vancouver, uh, but looking at uh, most of the universities in southwestern Ontario, uh, eastern Ontario, and across the border in Montreal, and then out west, uh, almost in every town, uh, University of Manitoba, University of Saskatchewan, University of Calgary, and University of Alberta would be great schools for us. Uh, And really, we're looking for schools that attract students from out of town so that they want to live on campus or near campus. Mm. Uh, large foreign student bases are uh, ideal. Uh, and international students, as everybody knows, uh, pays premium tuition to come to school in Canada and are, are willing to pay to live in high quality student accommodations as well. Very cool. Well, we'll get into the, uh, the travel and such in a second here too, but like, so how, how about the structure of your fund? Is it, um, like Joe was alluding to, more of a like a monthly or quarterly, or do you have like a private equity structure? And how do uh, uh, how do people subscribe to it and, and redeem? Sure, great question, and it segues nicely into what Joe was just saying. So we're we're structured as a private REIT, uh, and what that means is it's available by offering memorandum. Uh, we partner with portfolio management portfolio managers in the wealth management industry, uh, like Joe, who who are looking to get exposure to. Uh, alternatives to generate alpha for their portfolios. And what we like to say is that uh, most portfolio managers are familiar with real estate as an asset class, and we provide a niche uh, niche asset, niche sector in real estate. So we're an alternative within an alternative is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, so it's available uh, on a quarterly basis, uh, although we are moving to a monthly process starting in the new year. Uh, so we, you know, we launched in June of 2018 with quarterly subscriptions and redemptions. Mm. We also pay a distribution on a quarterly basis. The real underlying real estate generates cash flow, and we distribute that out to all of our investors in a very tax efficient way, uh, which is also very attractive to portfolio managers. Oh, wow. uh, real estate uh, uh, generates depreciation for tax purposes at CCA or capital cost allowance, which shields all of the income for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So we're able to distribute very tax efficient income out to our underlying investors, and uh, that creates a great uh, cash flow stream to investors. And uh, and for those investors who aren't looking for the yield or cash, they're able to reinvest at a very attractive two percent discount to fair market value every quarter. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, you covered everything. That's fantastic. Uh, so how about you know, like you say, the your your um, your base in the the tier one cities and the ones that attract uh, out of town and out of, out of country folks. So, how has well, here comes the word COVID? How has COVID affected that? And uh, and what kind of I guess no one really saw it coming, but like how do, how do you guys ameliorate or, or lessen the the impact on the portfolio, or is it just something that we have to get through for the next maybe the next six months or next year or so? And uh, it just that's just 
kind of how it how it goes like how, how do, what other kind of income streams might these have yeah so so great question so in mid-march when when basically canada went into lockdown and uh you know the pandemic was declared by the world health organization it was a pivotal moment for us uh because we didn't know uh how this would impact us right all the universities across canada uh shut down their on-campus operations sent the kids home and uh, you know the immediate concern was is our business dead uh, is is the world moving to online? Are all are kids going to learn on Zoom classes every day now? Uh, and so, you know, that all happened kind of March 13th, Friday, March 13th is when all the announcements started coming down. Mm-hmm. Our immediate concern was, well, what happens in April 1? Is nobody going to pay us rent? Is everybody just going to throw us back their keys and say, come after me? And, uh, and so we learned a few lessons. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, the structure of our leases were, uh, very helpful to us. We have full parental guarantees on all of our leases. And uh, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, the parents continue to pay their leases. We've been fortunate to have almost 97% uh, yeah. collection rates on our accounts receivable throughout the pandemic uh, over the last six or seven months. And and the learning from this is that uh, the parents uh, don't want to have their kids graduate from university with a black mark on their credit record. Right? Being in default on your student housing Residence is not a good way to start your professional life. Maybe you're looking to get your first apartment or buy your first house. And, and so to, <laughs> yeah. to have that black mark on their credit record was just not something parents were willing to do. And, you know, relative to the cost of tuition, paying for student residence was not seen as a material cost. Most families already budget for, uh, for the student housing uh, cost in their family finances. So, True. so they continue to pay our rent, their rent. Then, uh, then the second second big question that we had to deal with: Well, what happens in September? Uh, you know, schools uh, by far, by far, uh, for the mm-hmm. most part, have been online for the fall semester and have announced that they're going to be online for the winter semester. Does that mean kids are all going to stay home? Uh, you know, why do you need to be uh, on a student housing property at campus? And uh, and I think we learned a few things about uh, kids, about people, uh, about the social aspects. Uh, you know, first of all. Uh, people are social animals and we want to be near our friends. We, we don't like the isolation. Uh, more importantly, kids don't like living at home. They don't oh, want yeah. to be stuck with, uh, you know, they don't want to be stuck with mom and dad uh, living at home, uh, doing Zoom calls in the basement all day long. And, uh, and so what we found is that uh, kids started coming back to campus. And initially it was, uh, it was slower and uh, we weren't sure where we'd end up. And then what happened was there was kind of the, the FOMO effect, the fear of missing out. When, when kids who stayed home initially realized all their friends went back, they, you know, we started getting frantic calls. Hey, do you have a bedroom for me? Can I come back too? And, and so we've been fortunate to you know, weather the storm, if you want to call it that. We're, we're running at around 85% occupancy today across our portfolio. Uh, some of our cities, in some of our cities, uh, we're totally sold out. So it's really you know, university dependent uh, in terms of how the kids have reacted. In southwestern Ontario, at Waterloo and, and McMaster, wow. The kids have all come back. Our, we have four properties in those two markets. They are 100% full. We don't have a single bed that's available. Other markets have been a little bit softer in the interim, but we, we know that these markets will recover. And then the key learning for, for us is that uh, uh, student housing is going to persevere. It's proven itself to be pandemic resilient. We always said we're recession mm-hmm. resilient. Uh, you know, we had no idea how, how nobody knew how we would fare in a pandemic. And we've been quite fortunate that we've weathered the storm. And, uh, and then I guess the final punchline to all this is uh, international students who haven't been able to come back to Canada until recently, you know, they, they mm-hmm. hate doing 
they hate doing the Zoom calls in the middle of the night, right? The, the poor kid in Asia who's got an economics class at 3 p.m. in True. Toronto time, you know, he's online at 3 a.m. In, in Shanghai or Beijing. It, it just doesn't work. So we, we know that the international sco- students are desperate to come back to Canada. And the Canadian universities need the international students to, uh, to make their budgets work. So we're, uh, we're, we're looking forward to September 2021, huh. uh, when hopefully schools are back in full operation. Wow, that is totally what people would have might have thought earlier, like about nine months ago. Because, yeah, we were actually on that day. I was in Geneva with my my kids going to school there, and he we took him back like on the Monday. But then he's like, "Oh, I got to get back there because you know all the classes coming up and all the exams were basically at two a.m. our time." And so that yeah, that's terrible because they're like six hours off, eh? And uh, and was there for a bit, and now like he's going back and forth a bit. But it's uh. It's uh, yeah, you have. It's good to be there to socialize, even if you can't socialize. You do have the time zones to worry about. So I would originally thought that uh, that it would have been kind of like lights out for uh, student housing in Canada, but that's great to hear that uh, that kids are still using it and and uh, for a lot of reasons that uh, that are kind of basic basic human motives, which are interesting. That's cool. Um, how about to you, Joe? Like for let's take think about like basic human things as, such as real estate. So of your portfolios, how much do you have in uh, in real estate, and like how do you work out those those IPSs, investment policy statement uh, weightings, and that compared to like long only markets or you know stocks and bonds or other things like hedge funds and 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 I'm not sure if you're into other other types of privates like lending or maybe private equity and that. So how do you how do you come up with those? So. Uh... Richardson Wealth is actually very, very, uh, we're lucky to be there because they give mm-hmm. us a lot of latitude with the amount of alternatives we can hold in our model. <clears throat> when I look at what my competitors are doing, they often have really strict limitations on their allocations to non-traditional asset classes. Um, and of course, the reason why we like to use non-traditional asset classes and alternative assets is really for diversification. So it's to actually stabilize the portfolio so that when you have volatility mm-hmm. in public debt and equity markets, you can smooth it out with the non-correlated alternatives. And so to that extent, uh, you know, we actually have a very heavy weighting to the uh, alternative section. Um, and, um, you know, I would say half of our investments are in traditional liquid, uh, you know, ETFs. Uh, and maybe another 10% in actively managed uh, equities and private, uh, sorry, public equities and public debts. So, mm-hmm. you know, looking at international bonds and looking at uh, emerging market equities, we typically like to manage that. We also have a little uh, overlay, uh, which allows, uh, it's a position, it's only 5 to 7%, which can go from all bonds to all stocks basically based on four um, inputs. Um, so it's rules-based, oh, wow. which is a really useful tool uh, and proved itself nicely, not just in March when you had that correction, but also in 2018 when markets decreased. So it's had a five-year track record, really nice. Just an easy way to help manage the vol- volatility in the portfolio without us having to put any trades in. Um, and then, hmm. yeah, so we typically use that as opposed to having any um, long only hedges or, you know, long shorts or, um, you know, equity type hedge funds. Um, although we do have some strategies in our model, uh, you know, to deal with interest rate risk and to deal with 
uh, even looking at resource commodity uh, volatility management. Um, and yeah, as you're alluding to, we definitely take advantage of the options that are available for private equity and private debt. Um, and we try and have a couple of holdings for private debt just because it's a slightly more complicated uh, and there are a lot of different types of private debt that, that are of options that are available out there. Whereas with private equity, there aren't that many retail or you know even accredited investor level uh, friendly private equity funds that are diversified. Um, so I, I'd also add that mm -hmm. you know initially I said liquidity was an issue and we were trying to sell a bunch of funds uh, in March, uh, in order to buy low low cost uh, public traded markets, student housing was not one of those uh, funds we were trying to sell. <laughs> in fact, nice. we were we were we were nervous as well, but we really thought that you know this was just going to be a bump in the road towards uh, what we see as a very prosperous end with a consolidation of a Canadian student housing market that's currently quite fragmented, and of course the synergies that go along with it, and so. You know, we're very happy to see that the NAV took, you know, and now it's back to where it was. It took very, like a 1%, not even not even 1% decrease uh, for a three-month period. And most importantly, the distributions continued without stopping. So it gave us great stability in our model. Um, mm -hmm. Where And so when you look at that, you know, risk-return structure, when you have the risk, which is measured in standard deviation, you know, a lot of student housing really helped smooth out that whole March experience. It basically doesn't show up when you look at that angle. Um, and then, you know, Sanjil had alluded to uh, them being a niche player in, in, in the real estate, um, you know, asset class. And of course, that's not our only holding in, in real estate. We also have a mm -hmm. diversified uh, global real estate play, which is a combination of public equity and public uh, debt with private equity and private debt just in real estate. So it's a turnkey solution, which addresses, you know, a pretty broad uh, amount of securities. Um, and then at the same time, we have some uh, other private debt in real estate, which pays a steady coupon. And um, yeah, you know, there's a lot more details to discuss. But for the purpose of this call, I think that's uh, sufficient. Well, wow, it's great to hear you have so many, uh, so many options available there. Um, and yeah, you're right, like, if, if things go down, it's probably going to be the public markets. And they're going to go down a ton, but and they are liquid, and so those are the things you can sell, but you don't want to. And then the private stuff, you're like, oh, gee, if only I could sell this stuff, and you know, because it didn't go down. Um, I guess when uh, I don't know if you got you, you've done a lot in managed futures or CTAs, but or commodity trading advisors, but they typically have a negative correlation when when markets broader markets are dropping, and um, the, so if you write CTA backwards, it's ATM because people start to sell the thing because yeah. you can. And get the cash and put it into privates. But the other thing about privates, and this is a double-edged story, it's, it's half half joking. It's it's like you you know the the best thing about it is it's stale dated, so you never really know if you if it's gone down. But um, and you had uh, you know obviously there's only so many appraisals that you're going to do every year or so, and there's new legislation that that uh, is going through to make it a little bit more more uh, often. But um, how, how do you view that? Like, so yeah, the price hasn't gone down, but you can't really get out because it's even like last year. If you if it's March, you're like, okay, you might get your money in July because uh, you'll be coming out in, in you know the end of June. Um, how do you explain that to uh, to clients and say you know when they say I want my money? Like, well, this is or is it more something that you front end load into the relationship and and when you're explaining their yeah, portfolio? Yeah, that's right. So you know those that want liquidity 
don't even touch our models. We tell them right away, you know, there are components of this which you won't be able to access. Uh, there's a potential for gating, which is actually a great feature because it adds a lot of security to the, uh, you know, investment totally. that you have. Um, yeah. I think gating is a great, uh, you know, uh, right that funds get uh, in order to preserve the stability. Um, and the stale nav question, uh, particularly, we were very sensitive to it this year because in March, when we didn't know, you know, what was going to come out of this before all this, and or how the stimulus was going to play through, and particularly in privates, who were going to benefit from it. I mean, it's pretty. It, I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but it was straightforward to save the entire public market. It seems, which of course is not comp, not straightforward when you look at the underlying mechanisms mm -hmm. they had to do you know, at the central banks and, and obviously across the governments with fiscal stimulus, but you didn't know which privates were going to actually see any of that money. Um, and so there was a bit of a worry that, okay, you know, people are really pleased with their March statements because there was no drop or there was a, you know, 5% drop or 7% drop compared to significant, uh, you know, public only strategies, which had bigger drops, but what's going to happen in, in five months? You know, when when there's repricing that happens, what's going to happen in a yeah. year from now? And so, you know, the initial theory was, OK, sell these, you know, stale dated securities to go and arbitrage to buy the, you know, up to date priced securities, which are at a discount. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, in many cases, we weren't. Fortunately, we, you know, did great due diligence at the outset. And um, those, all those holdings did not exact, did not have an adjustment in their nav that was negative. There was no one that came back mm -hmm. and said, you know what, we're going to have a huge write down. The only, mm -hmm. the only holding that we had that had a pretty big write down, and they were not stale dated. They actually were month to month marketing. They marked mark their prices, I should say, um, was in the private debt space. And uh, you know, we actually look at that as an opportunity to buy now because. We, you know, it's it's already a diversified holding. So if if there's discounted private debt out there that might be distressed, um, now is a great opportunity to kind of capitalize on it. Um, given that everything else is so priced up, uh, you know, who knows how high things can go. But mm -hmm. uh, our initial thesis for having alternatives in the model was, of course, for diversification. But it was also one that you know, with interest rates near zero, bonds provide very little yield. Um, and with markets at record highs, um, you know, maybe there could be a slowing of growth over the next kind of five to 10 year span. So getting a bit more stable return in the private debt, private equity, real estate, a hedge spacing is what uh, was attractive. Well, it's good your clients have you to keep an eye on everything. <laughs> You've got a lot going on there. Wow. I just like to find guys like Sanjil and then let them run. And then <laughs> that's kind of like how I make sure everything's okay. You guys touched on a couple of interesting comments there, right? About the stale dating and, uh, you know, mispricing. We, uh, we had, you know, we, we wanted to be reactive when the pandemic first broke. We were, you know, we were engaging valuators to uh, go and appraise our properties on an annual basis. That's what our offering memorandum requires us to do. But when the pandemic first broke, we realized that this is our time to step up as a manager. And we immediately retained our uh, appraiser to go and do a valuation of every property on a quarterly basis. And we bought wow. them on a retainer, basically doing that now since March 31st. And we've said, you know, just keep doing that through the pandemic because we we need to be out there uh, and transparent with our 
with the the portfolio managers and our investors who support us and they need to know what's going on with our portfolio so you know that was kind of one part of the equation the other part was uh uh we we tried to have transparent discussions we you know uh, joe and i have probably had uh you know, a handful of discussions over the last six months where hopefully he has much better visibility on what's going on with the underlying portfolio, how we're thinking about the risks and managing it. Uh, and likewise, you know, most of the portfolio managers we interact with have uh, have been asking pretty good questions and, and our job as a manager is to provide the transparency so they know how our offering fits into their portfolio models. Cool. Maybe we'll stay with you, Sanjil, for a bit too, and then we'll go to go to Joe. Like, so how how did you go, how did you manage your your messaging for uh, to PMs and to advisors like like Joe? Is it like okay, we're going to do like weekly calls, or is it more ad hoc, or or you know podcasts and that, or what's because we've seen a variety of folks come like through LinkedIn and or even just just personally calling up everybody. So what what, what was your plan? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, one of the things when we uh, were relatively new, first of all, we only launched in two thousand eighteen. Uh, one of the uh, approaches we took when we launched is we're going to differentiate ourselves by having much more robust communications, disclosure, and transparency with everybody who supports us. Uh, so we've always been a, a little bit ahead of our ahead of the curve on that front. We do a monthly, or sorry, a quarterly management report where we uh, provide a lot of transparency to uh, to our uh, supporters. We do a quarterly conference call, which is now a web call, uh, where, uh, where we invite uh, the listeners to ask questions and do a Q&A session at the end of it. And, and really, um, all, every, every relationship we have with a portfolio manager, investment advisor, or direct investor is a personal relationship. And every one of them uh, has my direct contact information. And I, I would say that in, uh, you know, towards the latter part of March and early April, I was probably doing five to six calls a day. Uh, to to provide an update on the portfolio, mm. what's going on, how are we going to weather the storm, uh, and then that kind of uh, subsided through the summer, and and then again, uh, you know, the intensity picked up again in September, uh, where where the questions were much more about, well, did the kids come back? Uh, you know, what's your occupancy like? And then, uh, you know, it, it's all about uh, getting out there and, and being honest and upfront with your uh, with your supporters, with your constituents, and and I think that. Uh, that carries all, that gives you a lot of credibility when everybody knows what's going on. Uh, I, I would say the the biggest thing is nobody wants to be surprised, and and so we've always tried to take that approach. Let's just make sure everybody knows and makes an informed decision. Cool. How how about to you, Joe? How did uh, how did you continue communicating with your clients and uh, giving them updates? I guess it was was there kind of a special COVID communications package for you? Yeah. So my goal was essentially to try and be as relevant as I could uh, in uh, an environment that essentially had people being updated about COVID protocols left, right, and center. I remember I was getting updates from McDonald's <laughs> or from, you know, my, my even the guys who were taking care of, shove, not shoveling my drive, yeah, shoveling my driveway because it yeah. was in March. And so it was just like, okay, how do I make it so that what I say actually stands out yeah. and doesn't get lost in all of the... Uh, you know, uh, the rest of the emails that are being received. So, you know, I think having, we had, a, we, we usually have a regular communication with, with our investors. And what I did was I, on a Sunday night, sent out a personal message to all mm. of them, um, you know, with, with similar content, uh, but that really hit home that, you know, because of the fact that we are invested in alternatives, 
uh, our uh, model was not nearly as badly as affected as what you're reading about in the newspapers. Uh-huh. And so you could take comfort um, that, you know, when you get your statements, they, you know, you don't have to panic, you know, and it's actually normal to get some volatility. So uh, if there are any questions or concerns, obviously, I'm, of course, available, but you know, know that, you know, well, there are so many people out there handling the health crisis because a lot of our clients are doctors. Um, you know, we're in the background yeah. handling the wealth crisis. So we're going to be working diligently to make sure that, you know, all of the managers that are in your underlying portfolios are, are on top of this, which they are. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, we'll make adjustments as needed. And ideally, we'll be speaking for our regular reviews. So we tried to make it, uh, yes, it's an extreme situation, but it's under control as best as it can be. Um, mm-hmm. And we're properly diversified so that when there is a recovery, you know, we'll benefit from it. Um, ideally to the greatest extent possible and even be able to take advantage of some of the, uh, the lower prices that are available. Uh, and then that worked out really well. Um, one thing uh, I'll say about Sanjil's uh, setup that he did mm-hmm. was and at Alignvest, they had a great combination of, you know, their typical quarterly reports, which are well-documented, but also they had a special COVID bulletin, um, which I was able to sort of forward to clients uh, in the event, you know, that they were, had questions. So we didn't have a big deluge of calls. Um, but, you know, whenever we did have people email saying, hey, you know, we're, we're invested in this real estate. What do you think about this? I'd say, well, here's an example of one of the managers and what they're doing. And it was really yeah. well described. Um, so that was helpful. So we didn't have as good of tools, I would say, as uh, AlignVest had put together. But um, I think that in a time where people are in information overload, less is more, as long as it's very clear. Right. And so that's where we were trying to uh, really uh, hit. And I think we successfully did it because we had a 100% client retention this year. It's very cool. Yeah, you need somebody to cut through the chaff there and all the, all the, all the noise. Yeah, like they don't need me to talk about how severe and how many cases. Like, no, no, no. Like, it's bad. We're we're handling it. You guys continue to do what you're doing best, and we'll continue to do what we're doing best. And you know, we'll see you on the other side, and and then we'll we'll review things at that point. Mm-hmm. How about uh, Sanjil for you? Like, uh, and Joe mentioned diversification and also consolidation, and we've seen some like with Laidlaw over the years and, and Lowen. Uh, and you know, what's, so what's the play here? Is it, is it, uh, and I think you mentioned this to me before, but, uh, is it this consolidation of, of, um, of student housing in these, these tier one cities? And then if it is, then what's, what's the next step after that? Or is it just like such a huge market? You you're, you have like $2 billion of capacity or something like how far can this thing go? Yeah. So that's, that's really going back to the heart of, uh, our, our initial thesis, right? Uh, which is really focused around the fact that the Canadian student housing industry is highly fragmented. Uh, it's, it's kind of built up by the local developers in every market that we look at, but there's no national player, no national grant. And if, uh, if you look uh, kind of south of the border in the United States or uh, across the ocean in the UK and even in Europe, there are some large players, large brands, national brands that have emerged and they've been backed by institutional investors. Uh, you know, the, the likes of the, the NASICs, the GICs, the, even CPP uh, is, is a large investor. And, and so for us, we look at this and we look at Canada mm. uh, as, as a preferred destination for international students and, and even our domestic students. Uh, our our uh, enrollment rate in universities is growing at a faster rate than almost any country in the Western world. 
combine that with the fact that uh, the supply of beds is very low, we have a perfect economic imbalance, you know, the supply demand graph, the imbalance is just staggering. Uh, in Canada, only 3% of our students live in off-campus purposeful student housing. In the US and the UK markets, those numbers are 10 to 15%. So we have you know, anywhere from one-third to one-fifth of the supply of beds uh, uh, available for our students, uh, whereas the demand, on the other hand, is growing faster than any other country in the world. So, so we look at this as a, as a you know, perfect opportunity to consolidate an industry, introduce professional management in the operations, and, and really benefit from scale and efficiencies. There are scale efficiencies that we could put in place in local markets. Uh, you know, when we go buy a building in Waterloo where we already have a building, it's very easy to tuck in and centralize the maintenance, the leasing, the sales, all the management functions. Uh, and then, uh, you know, across, across the country, as we start to implement and uh, roll out our national grant, it's something that is very appealing to our tenant base, hmm. not, not the students themselves, but the parents who are paying the rent. They want to know that they are, uh, right. you know, for the most part, students are leaving, uh, the students who live in our properties are leaving home for the first time. The parents are, are very concerned about where their kids are living, who's going to take care of them. So, you know, the, the national grant mm -hmm. that we are building is very important from a, a parent's mindset in terms of where their kids are li living. And, and on that note, you know, we're able to introduce some national programs to, to give parents and to give the university some comfort. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we, uh, we take great pride in is the mental health awareness and training that we provide to all of our uh, staff at our, mm -hmm. at our properties. We make sure that uh, students uh, are, are being interacted with every day. You know, we don't want a situation where somebody goes to class all day, comes home and goes straight to their class and nobody speaks to them for, you know, eight to 10 hours. And uh, we want to make sure that there's uh, you know, a smiling face at the front desk who can greet them, ask them how the day went. We're introducing uh, social programming and activities so that huh. kids have a chance to interact with their peers and make friends. And uh, it's not an isolated experience. So. Those are the things we're trying to do to differentiate ourselves. But uh, you know, going back to your question, this is a consolidation play. We're at 3,400 mm -hmm. beds today. Uh, our, our goal is to get somewhere between 10,000 to 15,000 beds over the next uh, three to five years. Uh, that will give us uh, approximately a billion to a billion five of asset value. We're sitting at around $430 million in asset value in our portfolio today. And at that point, uh, we're large enough and relevant enough to have uh, multiple options for our investors who have supported us throughout. Uh, the easiest and most natural outcome would be to take our private REIT and turn it into a public REIT and give our, uh, give our investors liquidity and exit options through the capital markets. Uh, so that's, that's one option that uh, is always available to us. And we are making sure that we take every step possible to maximize the probability of doing that. Uh, the other option is, uh, you know, we, we think that there might be a compelling opportunity to, uh, to do an outright sale to one of the large Canadian pension plans or international investors. Uh, we already have some of the large Canadian pension plans uh, knocking on our door and asking us, uh, you know, what we're doing, how big are we, can they invest with us? And, and so, you know, when, when we think about uh, like, a, like a CPP or an Ontario Teachers or, or any of the Canadian pension plans, they, they are very interested in putting capital to work. What they don't want to do is they don't want to go buy a $30 million building in Waterloo and then a $40 million building in Edmonton and have to do all that 
roll up work and, and build out the infrastructure and the systems. They'd rather write a check for three, four, five hundred million dollars and know that they've got a, an established platform that's growing and generating a, a good, stable uh, cash flow position. So, so that's really the other alternative. And you know, if, if we set this up well, then mm-hmm. uh, then the situation that we expect will arise is we'll have multiple options to to reward our investors. Very cool. How about uh, a couple more questions for you? So you, 430 billion, do you use leverage? Is that, so that's the asset value and then you have like the AUM of the fund is, is another number and how does that leverage affect what you're doing like uh, margins and and I guess inherent risk or is it more like it's real estate so there's probably not that much? Uh, so yes, we use leverage uh, as is typical with most real estate firms. Uh, so our target leverage is 65% LTV. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a combination of first mortgages and sometimes uh, second mortgages if necessary. Uh, what's, what's really interesting over the last, uh, you know, 12 months or so with, with interest rates, with the decline in interest rates and the abundance of capital, uh, you know, we, we have been uh, very active in looking to refinance some of our properties, which is something we're focused on right now, you know, in, in the midst of a pandemic. There's only so much you can do to to create more income, uh, but another way that you can generate returns is by reducing your interest costs. So where, whereas we were borrowing at four percent plus uh, pre March, uh, you know the cost of debt has now come down into the low threes. So we're able to mm. you know, we're able to take off uh, 75, 80 basis points on our uh, on our interest rate, and and that's just huge. That's a huge uh, return generator. Uh, as we as we look into 2021, so we're we're in the midst of doing that right now as we speak. We're looking at uh, opportunistic uh, ways to refinance debt on many of our properties and head into 2021 with uh, uh, with good uh, good debt facilities locked up. Very cool. Uh, do you have any parting, uh, I guess, thoughts for uh, for listeners as we uh, get into the end here? Yeah, I think I think for us, we are we are looking at this now. Uh, you know, the, the rollout of the vaccines uh, is a big step for the world, but especially for our business. Uh, we are anticipating that Canadian universities will be back uh, back in person in some capacity in the fall of 2021. And uh, for mm-hmm. us, the biggest learning here is that uh, student housing has proven its resiliency. In, in you know this this was kind of unknown territory or unterritory or uncharted territory yeah. uh, heading into the pandemic. Uh, we've always said uh, student housing is recession resilient. Uh, that was proven out in two thousand and eight. <laughs> you know, in, a, in an economic downturn, what do what do people do? They either stay in school longer or they go back to school. Uh, we can now say uh, that we're also pandemic resilient, which is a huge step for us. And it just uh, it shows that we are a differentiated asset class that is totally uncorrelated, not only to the uh, general market, but also uncorrelated to other real estate asset classes. And, and, and from our perspective, that just strengthens our ability to appeal and attract capital from uh, sophisticated portfolio managers, investment advisors, family offices, and other investors. As we think about 2021, we want to get back on the acquisition hunt. And our goal is to uh, is to go back out there and start to acquire good quality properties in, in markets that we have been diligencing and like across Canada so that we can get back on track to uh, getting to 10 to 15,000 beds over the next three to five years.
Thanks, James.